Dean Bible Ministries presents the Bible teaching ministry of Dr. Robert Dean, pastor of West Houston Bible Church. These and other Bible lessons are available from www.deanbible.org. Now let's listen to our lesson from God's Word, the Bible. Trust in the Lord with all your heart and lean not on your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge Him and He will direct your paths. They that wait upon the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings as eagles. They shall run and not grow weary. They shall walk and not faint. Fear thou not, for I am with thee. Be not dismayed, for I am thy God. I will strengthen thee, yea, I will help thee. Yea, I will uphold thee with the right hand of my righteousness. Be anxious for nothing, but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving. Let your request be made known unto God, and the peace of God, which surpasses all comprehension, shall defend your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. Thou wilt keep him in perfect peace, whose mind is stayed on thee, because he trusteth in thee. For the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God shall stand forever. Before we get started tonight, let's have a few moments of silent prayer to make sure we're ready to study the word, that we're prepared uh, spiritually by being in fellowship, and that we are ready to put aside all the distractions and cares and worries and anxieties that uh, so often uh, attack our spiritual life so that we can just focus on the Word tonight. Uh, after a few moments of silent prayer, I'll open in prayer. Let's pray. Father, we're just thankful that we can be here to study your word tonight, thankful that you have given us your word and that it is your word that guides and directs us, it's your word that informs us how to think, and that it is your word that informs us of the nature of reality. Father, it is the nature of our own sin nature to try to suppress the truth in unrighteousness. Truth is reality. We live in our own sin nature generated fantasy worlds, and so often that is the source of so much of the unhappiness and misery in our own lives because our focus is not on on you. It's not on the world as you've created it. It's not uh, interacting with and responding to circumstances as you would have us respond to them. And so we uh, often create our own our own problems and our own misery. Now, Father, we pray tonight as we study your word that we might be stimulated and encouraged, for that is really the purpose of these passages that we're looking at, is to challenge us to keep our focus on the end goal, which is ruling and reigning with you in the millennial kingdom and preparing for that today. And we pray that as we go through these passages that they will, God the Holy Spirit will challenge us with them. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Okay, in our series... Now, on Thursday nights, going through Hebrews, we're focusing on, uh, in Hebrews chapter 9, we came to a key phrase related to the doctrine of inheritance. So you don't need to turn there because we're just sort of stepping off from this one particular verse uh, which uh, deals with inheritance and the role of uh, Christ's work in terms of inheritance. And in verse 15 of chapter 9, Hebrews chapter 9, we, we read, For this reason he is the mediator of the new covenant by means of death. For the redemption of the transgressions under the first covenant, that those who are called, that is, those who are believers in the Lord Jesus Christ, may receive the promise of the eternal Inheritance. So we're looking at this doctrine of inheritance because it is a concept, a doctrine, that runs all the way through Hebrews. And that is because the, the primary message in the book of Hebrews is to challenge these Jewish believers who have come out of, um, and we believe that most of them were priests, Levites who had come out of the priestly ministry, and they were... Uh, had been under persecution, rejection, and were threatening to fade back into just living like they did before they were saved. The pressure was too much, and Christians face that same pressure all the time. 
pressure to just go with the flow, to fit in with the culture around them, to fit in with uh, everyone that they work with, and not to stand out in a distinct manner as being a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ. And the more our culture drifts into overt paganism, the more Christians will stand out because we are different, and that is going to be obvious, and it'll be obvious to them, more obvious to them than you realize. And so there is, it's incumbent upon us to be steadfast and to persevere and not to give up and not to fade out just because things get a little bit difficult or it seems like we're under uh, rejection or persecution uh, people think we're strange or odd, or there's that uh, Jesus person over there, whatever it may be. We all face different kinds of, of uh, negative attacks on Christianity, and we're going to see that more and more. So there's a tremendous parallel there. And what Paul is doing, I mean, not Paul, but what, what the writer of Hebrews is doing to motivate them is to focus their attention on the end game which is that inheritance, that, that we're engaged in spiritual growth today in our lives, not just for the sake of having a happier life today or a more meaningful life today. The 20, 20th century gospel became so psychologized, and you hear this so much when people present Christianity that come to Jesus so your problems will be solved. Come to Jesus so that you can... Uh, have a happier life. So come to Jesus to solve the problems in your marriage. But the problem is that a lot of people get saved and their marriage problems don't get solved, and they're uh, they're not any happier in some sense because of decisions they've made in life. Their circumstances don't change, and many things like that don't change because Jesus isn't a cure-all in that sense. He's not a psychological fix-it man. He is the one who died on the cross to pay the penalty for our sins, and so only by trusting in him can we have eternal life, number one, and number two, only by growing as a believer afterwards can we have the mental tools, the mental discipline, the mental ammunition, the spiritual ammunition, as it were, to handle the pressures of the spiritual warfare that we're engaged in. And if we don't keep our mind on the end game at times, living today in light of eternity, then it's easy to just uh, let the circumstances of life uh, roll over us. So as we've gone through the doctrine of inheritance, talking about what it is, what the words mean, what inheriting means, uh, before the conference two or three weeks ago, uh, I was looking at the different phrases that we have in the New Testament, inheriting eternal life, which is a phrase that refers, to, I believe, to phase one justification, phase one salvation. And then we have this other term that we find in the New Testament, inheriting the kingdom. And, one, and there's a problem with this phrase because a lot of people want to think, want to read this as, meaning the same thing as inheriting eternal life, that inheriting the kingdom means entering the kingdom or going to heaven. And this has caused some tremendous problems. Now, last week, when I first came down with this, this uh, staph infection or whatever it was and couldn't make it in, it was a tremendous opportunity because Dan Ingram was here, and Dan did a tremendous job last week, a very well-organized presentation on... First uh, Corinthians chapter 6. He had done a paper on that last year at the Chafer Conference, and this was actually grew out of a paper that he wrote, I think it was his third year in seminary, back almost 10 years ago now, maybe it was 10 years ago. It was the first year or two that I was in Connecticut and, and um, mentoring him as he was going through his seminary classes, and he was needing to write a, a paper on a problem passage in Corinthians. And I said, hey, Dan, this would be a great passage for you to write a paper on. And he did, and I thought he did a tremendous job on it, got a good grade on it, even though the professor didn't agree with his position. And, uh, and so that's the objectivity you have to have as a good seminary professor, is you grade on how well a student argues their position, documents their position, footnotes, research, writes that kind of a thing, even though they may 
you may not agree with where they go uh, with with certain things or how they handle certain things. But he did a great job with it, and uh, I had wanted him and encouraged him to tighten it up and really uh, improve it. And hopefully he can get that published in the uh, in the Chafer Journal. So he did a great job last time, but he didn't quite. Uh, he had put some extra things in there that he didn't quite get to last time, especially related to verse 11. So I want to go back and just pick up and that part and tie some loose ends together. So if you will, open your Bibles to 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verses 9, 9 to 11. 1 Corinthians chapter 6, 9 to 11. If you weren't here last time, let me just read the verses for you. These are... This is one of those set of verses. There's a similar statement in Galatians chapter 5 that we'll also look at tonight that seems to say and that many people interpret, many pastors, theologians, some of your study Bibles will interpret it that way in their study notes, seems to say that if if, uh, Christians practice these things or, or these sins, then they're not saved. And so the verse reads like this, Do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God. Do not be deceived, neither fornicators, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor homosexuals, nor sodomites, nor thieves, nor covetous, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor extortioners will inherit the kingdom of God. And such were some of you. But you were washed, but you were sanctified, but you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus by the Spirit of our God. So Dan did a great job getting through verses 9 and 10 and down into, a, but he didn't, I don't think he quite nailed 11, or he may have, but I want to review that a little bit. And so we get to this point, and wrapping it up, what does it mean to inherit the kingdom? And in terms of inheritance, we've seen that there's this word group of inheritance related to the Greek word uh, kleronomos. And we ask the question, what does it mean to be an heir? An heir is someone who's designated as an heir who receives something as a possession or a beneficiary. It's not necessary, we've seen, for a person to die for someone to receive an inheritance. That's how we normally think of inheritance. Uh, Somebody dies in their will. They've left a certain amount of uh, money or property, valuables to uh, their uh, children or grandchildren, and so that's, that's the designated heir. Uh, but in the Bible, a, a, the concept, the core idea in inheritance is possession. God gives Israel the land as an inheritance. Now, nobody dies so that they can receive it. That's what I'm, the point I'm getting to here. The core meaning isn't death and passing on something. The core idea is ownership and possession. So an heir is one who receives the allotted possession also by right of sonship. Now that enters into uh, one category of heirship in relation to uh, Christ's heirship as the, as the son of God. And it's used of those who as sons of God, those who are born again, adopted into the royal family of God, uh, inherit the privileges of the messianic kingdom. So that's the idea in the noun heir. And then we have the term inheritance. And inheritance, again, emphasizes possession, property received by a possession. And when it, re- when it relates to the Messianic kingdom, the idea of the possession of the Messianic kingdom and its blessings so that one who is, has an inheritance in the kingdom has uh, ownership in the kingdom not just being present in the kingdom. And in the Old Testament, if you look at how these words are used in relation to the promised land, every Israelite had an ownership in the land. They had land that they, w- that would, they would pass on from generation to generation, land that would stay within the uh, tribal allotment. And so they had that ownership. But there were certain groups of people who lived in the land who did not have ownership of land. Uh, The Levites had no inheritance in the land, yet they, uh, they lived in the cities and they were responsible for ministering to everybody in the nation. 
aliens, that is non-Jews, Gentiles that came into the land, did not have inheritance rights in the land. They could not own the land, but they could benefit from the blessings of living in Israel, blessing by association. So these are ideas that we have to keep in mind when we read inheritance terminology in the New Testament. Passages such as Ephesians 5.5, For this you know with certainty that no immoral or impure person or covetous man who is an idolater has an inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. See, that's that same idea we have in the 1 Corinthians 6 passage, that sin really does have consequences. Now, we as believers, sin is dealt with, it's forgiven at the cross, as we've studied that, that, that it's wiped out, the debt is canceled for every single person at the instant that Christ died on the cross. It wiped out the sin penalty in terms of that legal objective penalty assessed by the Supreme Court of Heaven. But in terms of the consequences of the sin penalty, as it was enacted in Adam back, in, back when Adam first fell, when that sin penalty was enacted in him, the result was that he died spiritually, separated from God, and all of his posterity, all the descendants of Adam, are born spiritually dead. Where all he received a sin nature at the time that he that he died, uh, at, at the time that he sinned, he died spiritually and received a sin nature, and that sin nature is passed on to each subsequent generation. So. We not only have the problem of a, of a legal penalty, but that was paid for by Christ on the cross, but we have two problems that are related to how we're born. One is we're born uh, with a uh, sin nature, and we're born spiritually dead. So we're unrighteous, and we're spiritually dead, and those two problems are only resolved when we trust Christ as our Savior. The imputation of his righteousness solves the problem of our lack of righteousness. And then we are made alive again in Christ. We're regenerated, so that solves the second problem. This, this, way, this is the way in which salvation is applied to all of us. And so we all have certain things held equally as believers. We'll all die, we'll receive a resurrection body, we'll spend eternity with the Lord with no more sorrow, no more tears, no more pain. The old things are passed away, but there are also going to be some differences. And those differences indicate that we're all given the same opportunities. This is a great application for capitalism. We're all given the same opportunities at the point of salvation. We're all given the same spiritual assets. We're, every one of us is blessed with every spiritual blessing in the heavenlies. We're given a completed canon of Scripture, the indwelling Holy Spirit, the filling of the Holy Spirit, spiritual gifts. We're given all of these assets, but it's up to us to decide how we're going to use them. And so God gives us equal opportunity but what we choose to do with it means that there are going to be different results. There are some who are going to uh, come to the uh, judgment seat of Christ, and because they have walked by the Spirit and been obedient to the Lord, studied the Word, applied the Word, uh, God the Holy Spirit is going to produce tremendous works in them, and they are going to reap tremendous rewards. Others are not going to use their volition to, to study the Word and to grow spiritually, and they're going to have different results. There are some that are going to appear at the judgment seat of Christ, according to 1 Corinthians 3, and they are going to lose rewards. They are, these rewards are going to be taken, uh, they're not going to be distributed, they're not going to be given to them. And so they're not going to have those rewards, and eventually, as we'll see, those rewards that are not distributed are just going to be uh, going to be destroyed. So God gives everybody equal opportunity, but your volition determines what the outcome is going to be. And see, that's what's true of a free enterprise system, is that in uh, in capitalism, the idea is everybody under law should have the freedom not be restrained by government interference so that they have the freedom to make the most out of everything that they've been given. 
But there's always going to be inequalities in terms of results. Now, when people come in and try to guarantee equality of results, which is what happens in Marxism or socialism, you, you end up destroying individual responsibility and individual accountability and individual incentive to do anything. And that is what is so evil about socialism and Marxism is it destroys motivation and it destroys incentive. See, when you come to the scriptures and you look at the whole doctrine of rewards and inheritance, you realize that what God is laying out here is a tremendous incentive plan for us. Don't just sit back and say, oh, I'm just glad that I'm going to end up in heaven. And I've heard people say that and I just cringe with it. Oh, I'd rather be in the ghettos of heaven. Uh, as long as I'm there. No, that's not how you're going to feel if you end up with nothing at the judgment seat of Christ and you're just living down uh, in the ghettos of heaven. That's not going to work. Uh, but you'll be there. That's right. But there will be differences because you fail to utilize the assets that God gave you. Colossians 3:23 to 25 states the same kind of principle. Whatever you do... Do your work heartily as to the Lord rather than for men. See, the command is addressed to our volition. And it's based on knowledge of something. Because you know, most of your English translations will translate that as a, as a participle, just knowing. But it is a causal adverbial participle there. Because you know that from the Lord you will receive the reward of the inheritance. See, it's a reward a reward is given for what you do. A gift is given that is unrelated to what you do. Salvation is a gift, but inheritance is a reward. It is the Lord Christ whom you serve, for he who is doing wrong. And there's that word adikeo, that's A-D-I-K-E-O, if you can't read the Greek. I picked up the last part of Dan's slides, and he didn't have the English in here, so... Um. Well, that word adikeo is a key word for understanding 1 Corinthians 6. We'll go back and review that in just a minute. Uh, it's, remember, it's those who practice. Uh, don't you know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? The noun unrighteous is adike. Okay, the verb form is adikeo. So it's, it's important. That, that's a key word for understanding 1 Corinthians 6. So the one who is doing wrong is the same as the unrighteous. It's an unrighteous believer. And as we, as he explained last week, that is a noun, I mean an adjective over there in uh, 1 Corinthians 6, whereas here we have the verb form. He who is doing wrong will receive the consequences of the wrong which he has done, and that without partiality. See, there will be consequences at the judgment seat of Christ for sin in the life of the believer. Now, this really helps us understand something that has plagued Christianity ever since the, the beginning, at, at probably from the day of Pentecost, is that Christians haven't known what to do with sin after they're saved. We get this idealism that comes in, and somehow, you know, if you were really regenerated, you wouldn't do, act like that. And we've all run into people like that, and we've even maybe said stuff like that. Well, how in the world can that person be a Christian? Look at what they've done. And, and what's implicit in that kind of a statement is the idea that somehow, if we're born again or regenerated, that that does something to limit the production of the sin nature. So we just, Christians just can't do certain things after salvation that unbelievers do. But that's just not true. And, and this past, and, and scripture is filled with examples of that. We look at David and his adultery, murder, and, and we go to uh, Saul and all of his deceptiveness. We look at and his attempts to murder David. We look at Abraham and the way he, he lies and the way he, many of the other sins in Abraham's life. And we just see that, that believers throughout the ages are presented in scripture just warts and all. We still sin. And so there's been this problem. So the solution has been, as we'll see in a minute, the solution has been to either say that somebody's not really saved, because if they were, they wouldn't act like that, or they lost their salvation, or the third option 
is is the one we hold to, and that is that you can still act like an unbeliever, but if you do, there are consequences both in time, God will discipline you, or in eternity there will be a loss loss of rewards at the judgment seat of Christ. Now, Paul uses inheritance in five different passages in the uh, in the New Testament. Uh, three of these refer to salvation in Galatians 3.18 and Ephesians 1.14 and 18, which talks about the Holy Spirit being given to us as a, as a pledge or a seal of our, of our salvation. And then two of these refer to rewards. In, uh, these are five other passages than, than the Corinthians one. Um, Ephesians 5.5 5 and Colossians 3.24, where it's based on the actions of the, of the individual. Now, when we get to the concept of inheriting the kingdom, I think I have duplicated the slides here. Conclusion on that is that notice that uh, we haven't found anywhere in any of these descriptions of the verb that has a definition of to enter. Nowhere does inheriting mean to enter. It means possession. It means to acquire. It means to own, but it doesn't mean to enter or to re, or to receive, the phrase inheriting the kingdom is used four times in the New Testament, and we'll look at these: Galatians five sixteen to twenty one, First Corinthians fifteen fifty, uh, and First Corinthians six nine to eleven, where it's used twice. We'll come back to Galatians five in a minute. In 1 Corinthians 15, 35 and uh, 50, we read, but someone will say, how are the dead raised? And with what kind of body do they come? And the answer is given in verse 50. Now I say this, brethren, that flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor does the perishable inherit the imperishable. And in this passage, it's talking about the fact that mortal life, that mortal bodies cannot have ownership in the kingdom of God, so there has to be a resurrection body before there's going to be that inheritance of the kingdom. So let's skip down. I'm going to skip through a couple of these slides you had, and we're going to go back and review uh, what we've learned here in First Corinthians, what, from what he taught last week in First Corinthians six. That in First Corinthians six nine to ten, the adjective adikos refers to unrighteous believers. Now, I've got some slides I'm going to go to in a minute that, that are mine. They're going to make this a little more clear in terms of our review. But this is really important to understand. This is an adjective. Now, an adjective does what? Describes a quality of a noun. Actually, originally, adjectives are nouns. That's why sometimes these get misidentified as nouns, and they have the same ending in the Greeks originated our categories for understanding grammar, by the way, and their their uh, definition was an adjective was a noun that set, that described a quality of another noun. So, when we look at this passage in First Corinthians chapter one, I mean six, verse one, where Paul writes, "Dare any of you having a matter against another go to law before the unrighteous?" That's an adjective again. The unrighteous what? Unrighteous judges, unrighteous uh, leaders of the community, unrighteous believers, unrighteous unbelievers. What are they? I mean, it just says unrighteous. It doesn't give a a noun uh, that it modifies. There it becomes obvious that the unrighteous are unbelievers because of what is stated down in um, verses 4 and 5, or verse 6 rather, but brother goes to law against brother and that before unbelievers. And there you use the term apistoi, which is the word that Paul always uses for unbelievers. So unrighteous is not a term that necessarily means unbelievers. But then when you get down into verse 9, do you not know that the unrighteous the unrighteous what? Will not inherit the kingdom of God. And there you also have a problem with the uh, article. I'll get to that in a minute. 
So to inherit one must be an heir. That means there has to be a sonship there, adoption. And inheritance is a position or possession raised, received as a share or an allotment. Um, and last, to inherit means to receive a portion or allotment. That's just summarizing what I've said so far. We also know, number one, that inheritance can refer to salvation, but when it does, the context addresses the actions of God. And two, that when inheritance refers to the rewards of the believer in the kingdom, the context addresses the action or the conduct of believers. Now, the problem that we run into in all of these passages is just simply the problem of of post-salvation sin. And people handle it, uh, handle this passage by saying, well, he's talking about unbelievers here who aren't saved. A- a- actually, what, he's, what it says, what we hear is that these would describe people who thought they were believers, but it's obvious because they continue in these sins that they're not really saved. So they, it's not that they lose their salvation, they just never had it. Then the second position that's taken is the Arminian position, the position that you can lose your salvation if you commit certain sins. And basic, to me, the basic logic problem with that is that this is saying that God's grace is not big enough to handle certain sins or that God didn't know you were going to commit certain sins so Christ wasn't judged for them, that somehow he didn't pay it all on the cross. He only paid some of it. And there's a number of passages that we can go to on eternal security, but uh, we can do that another time. The third position is that of believers losing rewards uh, in eternity. And then there are some people who come along and try to say that this passage is written to believers about unbelievers, but that really doesn't, doesn't work. Now, I'm going to skip ahead here to... get into the passage directly. Okay. Do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? We have to identify the unrighteous before we can understand the concept of inheriting uh, inheriting the kingdom. There we go. So who are the unrighteous? That's the first question. second question is going to be to inherit the kingdom. Now, we have to remember that Paul is writing to the Corinthians. There's a map showing you where Corinth was located right there on the uh, isthmus of Corinth going from the Peloponnese to Achaia in Greece. And this was a major seaport city, so it had all of the detritus from the Greek and Roman Empire ending up there it was a place of retirement for soldiers, and you could find almost every kind of perverted fertility religion in the, in the neighborhood. For example, just north up in Delphi, Delphi across the peninsula and uh, much other uh, behavior. So the people that were saved there came out of a pretty uh, rank, immoral uh, context where, where they're the virtues of the Christian life just were not embedded within the culture at all. Here's a picture taken from Corinth looking across north, across the isthmus, over toward Achaia, toward, uh, you can can see these mountains over here. This is the area where the Oracle of Delphi was located. Even within the epistle, we see that uh, the Corinthians were, were divisive. They were fractious. First Corinthians chapter 1, they are just totally enthralled by Greek pagan philosophers uh, rather than the, word, the wisdom of the Word of God. Paul talks to them as carnal. They're filled with jealousy and strife. First Corinthians chapter 3, they were filled with their own self-importance in chapter 4. He accused them of boasting in chapter 1, chapter 3, and chapter 4. They're arrogant, chapter 3, and chapter 4. They're licentious and morally permissive. They're sexually immoral, chapter 7. They're gluttonous drunkards in chapter 11. They're self-absorbed and pagan in the view of the spiritual gifts in chapter 12, chapters 12 through 14. This is a lovely lot of people, okay? 
This is the, 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 the poster church for doing everything wrong. And we have to understand that because when Paul talks to them and, and about this kind of behavior, it's there in the church. That's what he's talking to them about. And he's going to tell them that if they continue, then they're go- going to forfeit their inheritance. So the concept of adikos, as we'll see, doesn't mean unsaved, which is what some people want it to mean. It simply means unrighteous, not not behaving according to the righteous standard of God. Okay, now we go we look at this word. This is this is critical to understand the passage. Dan did a great job with this last week. Verse one Dare any of you having a matter against another go to law before the unrighteous? and not before the saints. And the article is there in the Greek. Now, that's an important point to understand because when you get to verse 9, we read, Do you not know that the... And notice how I italicize the the because the article's not there in the original. Now, in Greek, the article doesn't function like a, an English article does. When you, lack, when you take out the article, it doesn't mean the noun's not definite, but it, it means you're emphasizing the quality of the noun. So what we're emphasizing here is quality and behavior. And when you look at verse 9 in context, what Paul is saying is, do you not know that unrighteous something will not inherit the kingdom of God? Unrighteous behavior, unrighteous acts, something like that is what he is, what he is talking about, not unsaved people, but people who continue in unrighteous deeds. You have to interpret verse 9 in light of its preceding verse, where Paul says, No, you yourselves do wrong. And this is the verb form, adikeo, which is the, the cognate to the noun or the adjective unrighteous, adikos. So it says, No, you yourselves do unrighteousness and cheat, and you do these things to your brethren. So that's um, showing that this that Paul is, is accusing them all of doing this, and that's a plural you there. Now, that's another thing important here. He's, he's talking to the congregation as a whole, and when he does, he uses that plural. Now, jo, uh, Jody Dillow in his work, The Reign of the Servant Kings, which is one of the best thorough studies out there on inheritance, writes concerning this. The phrase in verse 9 is not the same as the term the wicked in verse 1. In verse 1, the adjective has the article, and it is definite referring to a class. But in verse 9, it's without the article. The articular construction emphasizes identity. The Northrop's construction emphasizes character, which is what I've just said. I'm just putting this up here because every now and then somebody says, well, are you just making this up? No. I'm not the only one out out there teaching this. Uh, Because the same word is used twice, he says, once with the article and once without it, it may be justifiable to press for this standard grammatical distinction here. If so, then the adikos of verse 9 are not the wicked, or the unsaved, or awakened unbelievers of verse 1. They are not of the definite class of people who are non-Christians. Rather, as to their behavior traits, they are behaving in an unrighteous manner or character. In other words, the use of the wicked in verse 1 signifies being, but the use of wicked in verse 9, or unrighteous, it signifies not being, but doing, and that was their problem. Christians who are born into the family of God can still be disobedient children. And if you're disobedient children, it's going to have an impact and a consequence on inheritance. So what Paul is saying is, to give a corrected translation, do you not know that unrighteous behavior will not inherit the kingdom of God? Don't be deceived, neither fornicators, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor homosexuals. You know, that's like the big four overt sins nor sodomites, 
nor thieves, nor covetous. Now, you get down to thieves, and a lot of people sit rather smugly in church thinking, well, I'm not doing any of those. But covetous is a different matter. Remember, it was that that tenth commandment, thou shalt not covet, that's what, that what that is what really convicted the Apostle Paul. Here he was trying so hard to keep all of the Mosaic law. And in Romans chapter 7, he describes the fact that when he came to this the particular 10th commandment, thou shalt not covet, he realized he could not stop coveting on his own. It was impossible. This mental attitude sin of wanting that which is not ours, wanting something that's not our, our right to have, is just... Uh, something that runs through every single one of us, and he knew at that point that he could never completely fulfill uh, the Mosaic Law. Uh, drunkards, revilers, uh, extortioners will inherit the kingdom, uh, kingdom of God. And then verse 11, and such were some of you. Now, I, I like this passage because this is a fun verse to deal with. Um, most people mistranslate this. The way you've been taught to read this verse is wrong. So when I get into this, it, you might have to turn your head sideways to reorient your thinking just a little bit. Such were some of you, but you were washed, you were sanctified, but you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus and by the Spirit of God. Now, the way most people read verse 11 is they, they say Paul is saying to this group of Corinthians, such were some of you. And what he's saying is there's a couple of unbelievers. There's some unbelievers out there in the congregation, and or he's got this congregation. Some of you were, were good people, but some of you were, you, you, you were pretty perverse in your behavior. So some of you were perverse in your behavior, but some of you were fairly moral. But remember what he said about all these Corinthians? What he said about all these Corinthians is they're all perverted and immoral and arrogant and boastful and carnal. He's not saying that some of them are bad and the rest of them are really good. He's saying, no, they, they were all carnal. Now he says, such were some of you, past tense on the verb. Then he says, but you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus and by the Spirit of our God. Now it's important to look at this phrase, some of you. Now, you don't see this in the, in the uh, English, but that you here is a plural. Paul was from South Turkey down there in Tarsus, so he liked to use y'all. And the, he's talking to you all. Such were some of you all. So you all it includes the whole congregation all the way through. 1 Corinthians, from chapter 1 up to this point, he talks to the congregation with a plural uh, pronoun. He says, you all are the temple of God. He's not saying that, that, that's not saying that the congregation as a whole is a temple. He's talking about individuals, but he's addressing every individual within the corporate body. So the you all always refers to all the individuals within the corporate body. But then he says, there's some. Some of you describes a subset. Some of you were like this, past tense. The rest of you still are. Isn't that what he said in verse 8? No, you yourselves do wrong, present tense, and cheat, and do these things to your brethren, present tense. See, what he's saying is, some of you were perverted. The rest of you still are perverted. He's not saying some of you were good and... But and some of you were bad, and most of you were pretty moral. He's saying, no, you're all moral, immoral, you're all perverse, but some of you have grown spiritually out of that. But most of you are still acting just like you did when you were a, an unbeliever. Okay, now... The way most people look at this is that you all are the unbelievers and some simply refer to believers. But what I'm saying is that you all are believers and the some are the spiritually growing believers. 
the spiritually growing believers. So we can translate it this way, such were some of you all, but you all were washed. See, some of you got past it, and you're beginning to grow spiritually. The rest of you are still a bunch of perverted, arrogant, carnal Christians. But all of you were washed, positional cleansing at phase one salvation. All of you were sanctified, positional sanctification, phase one. You all were justified. See, he's addressing the whole congregation as a congregation of believers. So they've all, they're all saved, they're all justified, but only some of them are living differently than they did before they were saved. So in summary, the adikos in verse 9 doesn't refer to an unbeliever. Unrighteous doesn't mean unbeliever. It's an adjective referring to uh, behavior. It's linked to the wrongdoing in verse 8. The context is addressing believers all the way through. And so, and since only believers are heirs of God, in verses 9 through 10, the inheritance is based on human action. In other words, after you're saved, you have a decision to make. Are you going to pursue spiritual growth and maturity so that you can have a reward at the judgment seat of Christ and be the kind of person the Lord saved you to be so that you can rule and reign with him in the coming kingdom? And that's our provides our our motivation. Now, this isn't the only place that we have this kind of teaching in the New Testament. We have places such as Titus 3.7, that having been justified, what kind of a tense is that? That's past tense. Having been justified in the past, phase one salvation by his grace, we should become process heirs according to the hope of eternal life. So heirs, according to the hope of eternal life, means that we have eternal life, but we are heirs in accordance with that that, uh, confident expectation of a future life. To put it in a phrase I use all the time, living today in light of eternity, so that we, that's potential there. The subjunctive voice there indicates potentiality. So that potential is going to be activated only by your volition. Uh, Galatians 3.18, for if the inheritance is of the law, it's no longer a promise, but Abraham, uh, God gave it to Abraham uh, by promise. Um, Passages I used earlier, Ephesians 5.5, no fornicator, unclean person, covetous man who is an idolater has an inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. Uh, Colossians 3.23, whatever you do, do it as uh, heartily as to the Lord, not to men. Because you know that from the Lord you will receive the reward of the inheritance, for you serve the Lord Christ. And then verse 25, but he who does wrong, adikeo, there's that same terminology again that we have uh, back in 1 Corinthians chapter 6. The wrongdoer, the one who lives unrighteously, will be repaid for what he has done, and there's no partial. This isn't, this isn't lake of fire. This is loss of rewards at the judgment seat of Christ. So what's the solution? The solution is to walk by means of the Spirit. Walk by means of the Spirit, Paul says in Galatians 5.16, and you will not fulfill or bring to completion the lust of the flesh. These are mutually exclusive ways of living, either by means of the Spirit or by means of the sin nature. Uh, the way this is expressed in the Greek, that you shall not fulfill, is the strongest way to make a negative statement. What Paul is saying is it's impossible when you're walking by the Spirit to fulfill the lust of the flesh. When you are walking, if you were, if, if you were hindered in some way where you couldn't walk on your own, you had to use a walker or a cane, uh, you could, as long as you're walking by the cane, walking by the walker, you won't fall down. But if you stop depending on that, focusing on that walker or that cane, what's going to happen? You're going to fall down as a result of that. So it's it, the, the 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 sin comes after you take your focus off of Christ. Peter could walk on the water as long as he focused on Christ, but when he took his eyes off of Christ, when he quit walking by means of focusing on Christ, what happened? The result was he began to sink. 
That's the idea. We, the default position for every one of us is our sin nature. And if we quit conscientiously focusing on Christ, then the sin nature takes over. Now, the results of that are obvious in verses 19 and 20. The works of the flesh are evident, which are adultery, fornication, uncleanness, lewdness, idolatry, sorcery, hatred, contentions, jealousies, outbursts of wrath, and selfish ambitions, dissensions, and heresies. Have you seen a list like that before? Same thing we had in Ephesians 5, same thing we have in 1 Corinthians 6. Envy, murders, drunkenness, revelries, and the like, of which I tell you beforehand, just as I told you in times past, that those who, what, practice these things will not inherit the kingdom of God. It doesn't say they're not saved. It says that if you practice these things, so it's not just if you do them, if you uh, lied, if you got angry, if you went out and had an incident where you got drunk or you were uh, jealous or you lost your temper. It's not talking about individual actions. It's talking about if you're never, as a believer, focusing on growing and applying doctrine in your areas of weakness and your sin nature, and you continue to practice and justify that sin and not deal with it, then you will not inherit the kingdom of God. Now, we have another place in the New Testament where we have a very similar list, and this is over in Revelation chapter 21, or chapter 20. Revelation chapter 20. And we'll see that in verse... Revelation 21.8. But the cowardly, unbelieving, abominable murderers, sexually immoral, sorcerers, idolaters, and all liars shall have their part in the lake which burns with fire and brimstone, which is the second death. Now, the way most people read that verse is to say, well, This is just a listing of adjectives, um, adverbs, adjectives describing unbelievers. And unbelievers will have their role, their destiny, in the lake that burns with fire, which is the second death. That's how that's read. That's not what it's saying. That's not what that means. It's the same list we've been looking at already, isn't it? So it's saying that, that those who practice these things, but let's look at the context. To look at the context, you have to go back to verse 6. Verse 6, Blessed and holy is he who has part in the first resurrection. Over such, the second death has no power. Now, what's the second death? The second death is eternity in the lake of fire. Over such the second death has no power, but they shall be priests of God. Who are they? Those who have a part have a part in the first resurrection. Now we have to figure out what that word part means, but uh, those who have a part in the first resurrection shall be priests of God and of Christ and shall reign with him for a thousand years. It's talking about ruling and reigning as priest kings with the Lord Jesus Christ in the millennial kingdom. But what does that word part mean? See, we think of part like getting a part in a play, getting a part in a some sort of production, uh, having a role. But that's not what this Greek word means. The Greek word is meros. And meros is a technical term for a share or portion of an inheritance. It was used in a, in a will to show uh, that share or portion that went to the heir. So that when the prodigal son wants to get his inheritance and take off and, and spend it on... Uh, whatever he wanted to spend it on, he came to his father and he said, give me my miros, give me my portion, give me my inheritance, give me the share of my inheritance. So what Revelation 26 is saying, if we retranslate it, blessed and holy is he who has an inheritance in the first resurrection. When do you get that? Judgment seat of Christ. Over such, that is over... Those who have an inheritance, the second death has no power. Well, wait a minute. If we're believers, what kind of power can the lake of fire have over us anyway? I mean, what, this is 
seems to say is that somehow, am I still threatened by the lake of fire? No. I have to pay very close attention here. Over such, the second death has no power. That is, second death is not something someone, uh, an heir, should worry about. But they, that is, the heir, shall be priests of God, and Christ shall reign with him a thousand years. So what are we talking about in verse 6? And I didn't put the slide in here for verse 7, so I'm going to turn there and read it to you because it really sets the context very important. Make sure we have the context. Revelation 20. Twenty-one. I have that labeled wrong, don't I? Um, I was looking at twenty-one eight. I'm, yeah, twenty-one eight. I'm looking. Oh, I went back to chapter twenty. Blessed and holy is he who has a part in the first resurrection. Over such a second death has no power, but they shall be priests of God and of Christ, and shall reign with him a thousand years. Then, when you go to twenty-one, we read, "But the cowardly, unbelieving, abominable murderers, blah blah blah." Um, shall have their part in the lake which burns with fire and brimstone, which is the second death. But if you look at 21.7, 21.7 says, He who overcomes shall inherit all things. And if you notice in your English Bible, there's probably a period at the end of verse 7. Well, there's not. Verse 7 and verse 8 are one sentence in the Greek. He who overcomes shall inherit and what, what we see is those who are not overcomers, the cowardly, the unbelieving, blah, 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 their inheritance goes to the lake of fire. That's what those two verses are saying. So, verse 7 makes it clear we're talking about inheritance here. We're not talking about salvation. Verse 7 says, The one who overcomes shall inherit all things, and I will be his God, and he shall be my son. But the cowardly, unbelieving, abominable, murderers, sexually immoral, sorcerers, etc., shall have their part, their inheritance. Think of that word part. It's not their role. It's not their destiny. It's their inheritance. That which God would have given them at the judgment seat of Christ is not going to be given to them. But it's just sitting there. So what's God going to do? Well, God is going to flush it into the cosmic furnace, and destroy it, according to this verse. Their part, their, read that, their inheritance, their share of the inheritance is in the lake which burns with fire. That's how the lake of fire can have power over a failure believer's life, is because that's where his inheritance will end up. He won't end up there, but his inheritance will end up there. He sacrifices it forever because of living today on the basis of temporal pleasure rather than living in light of eternity. So Revelation 20, verse 8, talks about the, the loss of that inheritance portion goes to the lake of fire, which is the second death. So the inheritance is lost. But the promise that we have in Revelation 21, 4, is that God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. There shall be no more death, no sorrow, no crying. There shall be no more pain. The former things have passed away. And so there is still, there will, we'll get past all of this. There will be shame at the judgment seat of Christ for those who lose rewards, but they will get past that and be in, in the kingdom, but not have ownership in the kingdom. Now, what else does the Bible say about this thing called inheritance, this meros? We'll have to come back to that next time because that is very important. And we'll get into a very crucial passage that is also misunderstood, and then we'll kind of wrap this up and, uh, get, and then apply it to where, what uh, the writer of Hebrews is saying in Hebrews 9. Let's bow our heads and close in prayer. Father, thank you for this opportunity to study these things tonight and to uh, once again become face-to-face with the uh, motivation, the challenge that we have in Scripture, not just to be satisfied with being saved, but to live in light of our salvation, live as members of your royal family to pursue spiritual growth, spiritual maturity, because you have saved us for a purpose, and that purpose is to rule and reign with you in the kingdom 
but we need to develop the capacity. We need to develop the uh, character, the integrity today to prepare us for that future service in the kingdom. I pray that we will be motivated from the study of your word. In Christ's name, amen.